Amen. Thank you, guys. Um, we're going to switch a few things up today. Um, our text is actually going to come from Revelation chapter 20. If you have your Bibles, you can flip over to Revelation chapter 20. Um, when I uh, got here this morning, I got here early because I had a whole bunch of things I had to do. And um, the gremlins came out. And uh, they were in every computer system and in the copier machine and everywhere that you could find one. We found one this morning. Our Sunday school teacher was here early and on time and like a whole bunch of things were going wrong uh, with trying to get things set up and everything. And so the gremlins were out. Fortunately, they haven't been out so far during the service today. But uh, anyhow, that just got me listening to uh, listening to the Lord today. And so I want to share with you from Revelation chapter 20. I'm going to ask Brian at the back to do um, some kind of crazy thing here and to bring up all of Revelation chapter 20 and you can just pop it on the screen as we move through this together. So our text is going to come from Revelation chapter 20 and I want to give just a little bit of explanation about what's going on in this passage. When the first couple of verses that we run into Revelation chapter 20, it's talking about events that have already transpired and those events that have already transpired at the, transpired at the beginning of Revelation chapter 20 have to do with uh, where Satan is right now, uh, that is the putting of him away into hell during this period of the age of the church that we live in right now so that he's not running amok on the planet. So let's just take a look at how this um, unfolds. Revelation chapter 20, we're going to begin at verse 1. Here we go. Um, the Bible says, And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, ha having the key to the abyss, that is hell, and holding in his hand a great chain. He sees the dragon. This is the angel with the... You don't have to... Stand. Well, you can stand. Let's go ahead and stand up and read. Sure, why not? Y'all are so used to doing that. Is it actually up on the screen? Wow, Brian is fast. I didn't expect that we were going to be able to do that. So let's just read the first three verses together, and then we'll, we'll get y'all sitting down. All right, here we go. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He sees the dragon, that ancient servant, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations any more until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. Okay, you may be seated. Thank you all so much. Uh, this is all a little off the cuff, so just um, I appreciate you all hanging in there with us. Um, so let's start again at verse 1. Again, this is dealing with events that have happened in the past. It's getting ready to jump forward into the future, but let's just hang on here with verse 1. It says, and I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss. So John, who sees this revelation from God, um, is looking up into heaven. And there's a whole bunch of other things that John has seen already that have taken place. And so he gets to chapter 20, and he's sharing what he sees. Uh, this is in John's future, but it's in our past. Um, and he says, and I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss. That is the key to, to hell. And <clears throat> he says that he was um, holding in his hand a great chain. Now, here's what he's going to do with the chain. He says he sees the angel seized the dragon, that ancient serpent. So who are we talking about? Who's this ancient serpent? Who's this dragon? Well, he's been described earlier in the book of Revelation. Satan has been described as the dragon. He's been described as this ancient serpent. And he just goes ahead and spells it out. He says, who is the devil, the Satan? That's who we're talking about here. That's who this ancient serpent is. And he says, and he bound him for a thousand years, meaning that he now binds Satan up with a chain in heaven and sends him on down into hell or wherever, wherever he grabbed him at. And he throws him down to hell and then he takes the key. Remember, he's holding the key. This, uh, this, ancient, this angel's holding the key. And here's what he does. He locks him up, he said, verse 3. He threw him into the abyss 
and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore. So there's a purpose for sending hate Satan into hell for this period of time. Now, you remember I've taught here at the church before that creation started the beginning of human history, and then the fall happened, and then we had the age of the law, or the Old Testament age of human history. There's a second run of human history that begins with the coming of Jesus Christ, and it concludes, the age of the church, it concludes with the end of time, that is the end of human history. So human history has a starting point, creation, and it has an ending point, the end of time. Everybody follow me so far? All right, these events that are talking about right here at the beginning of Revelation chapter 20 are in that intermediary period. That is, Jesus has now risen from the dead, and then at some time between Jesus having risen from the dead and ascended on up into heaven, sometime after his ascension into heaven, these events in Revelation chapter 20 take place. And so where is Satan right now? Because it's describing, remember this is a past event, Revelation chapter 20, these first couple of verses. Where is Satan right now? He's in hell. In the in the first age, the age of the law, the Old Testament age, Satan was the prince of this world, right? Satan was the prince of this world. He was running around the world. He had had his way with the nations of the world. He was running amok on the planet. He was deceiving the nations of the earth. But now he's been bound. He's been thrown into hell for the purpose of, Revelation chapter, chapter 20, verse 3 said, for the purpose of, so that he could not deceive the nations anymore until a certain time had come, okay? Let's take a look at that verse. And if you remember, just let me just throw this out there. Jesus tells a parable of the strong man. And he says, hey, look, God, my kingdom has come, not in its fullness, but it has come. It started, so that inaugurates the beginning of the second age of human history, moving forward to the end of time, the current age that we live in now, the church age, or the age of the spirit. And Jesus says, hey, look, if I'm gonna defeat the strong man, what I have to do is I have to go into his house into the world where Satan is, where he's the prince of the world. I have to go into his house, and I have to bind the strong man. And that's the parable that Jesus talks. And Jesus is the, and the strong man is Satan, and Jesus is going to come into the strong man's house, and he's going to bind him, and we just saw that happen, right? So that he can then take out, take captive himself back, members of the strong man's household. And so Jesus says in that parable exactly what just happened in Revelation chapter 20, that the strong man, Satan, has been bound. He's been thrown into hell. He's there now. His minions are still doing their thing. They're still running around the earth. But he's no longer the prince of this world because the new king has come. A new kingdom has been set up on this earth. It hasn't come in all of its fullness yet, but now a new rulership, a new reign has taken over this world, and that is God himself. Uh, through Jesus Christ. So verse 3 says that he threw him, the angel threw him, that is Satan, into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore. That's his reason for doing it until the thousand years were ended. Now, some scholars will say, what is this thousand years? They would say, look, this is some event that has to take place way off into the future because then there's going to be these thousand years that transpire and which time Satan will then be released from hell. We'll see that here in a few moments. Um, this is one of those times when the right way to read the scripture is not to take it literally. I'm a, one, I'm a person who says, always read the Bible literally. That is, when it's trying to be figurative, let it be figurative. That means you're reading it literally. Y'all follow me, right? Um, so the point, the point being here is that the thousand years is always refers to a time of completion in the scriptures. Anytime something's a thousand years or 10,000 years, 
Anytime you have that, it's always referring to the time of completion. And so that's what this is talking about here. It's not talking about a literal thousand years. It's talking about the time of completion. All right? Because does God own, in the, in the Psalms, it says that God owns a cattle on a thousand hillsides. Does God only own a cattle on a thousand hillsides? No, the point is he owns completely all of them. That's the point that the psalmist is trying to make. And so here, when we read that he's going to be locked up, thrown into the abyss for the thousand years, it doesn't mean a literal thousand years. It means that time, the complete span of time, when that time, span of time has come to completion, here's what's going to happen next. It says, after that, after the thousand years are ended, he must be set free for a short while. So where is Satan right now? Satan is locked up. He's bound in hell. He's no longer running around on the earth, deceiving the nations of the earth. And that's where he's at. And he's still trying to, you know, got his fingers into things. He's got his demons up here running around the earth. They're still trying to do their things. still trying to manipulate people, but not to the same extent that it, the people of the earth were experiencing it during the Old Testament age because he's no longer the prince of this world. He's no longer just running around having free reign of the place. Jesus has gone to the straw man's house. You follow me here? He's gone into his world, into his kingdom, and he said, this is my kingdom now. And he's bound him, he's thrown him into hell, and that's where Satan is today. He's bound. His power has been, um, I don't want to say muted completely, but I mean his power has certainly been diminished greatly because this is now, the kingdom of God has now come, Okay. Now, you say, well, I thought Revelation was about future events. Yeah, we're getting ready to get there, okay? So y'all just hang with me for a second. Look at verse 4. He says, I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. Who are the people we're talking about here? We're talking about the people who had claimed the name of Jesus Christ, who had not been, uh, who had not, uh, um, I, I turned away from the Lord and had been martyred as a result of that during this thousand years, during this time of completion, during this time of the New Testament age, of the age of the Spirit, the church age, the age that we live in now. Um, he says, they had not worshipped the beast or his image, had not received the mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So they're up in heaven with the Lord Jesus and they're reigning with him. These are martyrs during this church age. He says, verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended, until this church age was ready to be swept up and the end of time was ready to come. Verse 6, uh, he says, this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Let me back up for just a few moments here, and I'm going to reread that verse, verse 5, it says the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. That's the rest of the, you know, what does the Bible say about when you die? Where do you go? You go to heaven. That's right. Somebody said it. You're right. You go to heaven. Your soul goes on up to, up to the Lord, but your body, your physical body stays here on the earth. Your corpse stays here on the earth. It becomes fish food. It becomes worm food. It deteriorates, whatever. When Jesus returns, and we'll see him return here in just a few moments, when Jesus returns, what is he going to do? The trumpet's going to blow. All those who had passed on before us, the souls of those who had passed on before us are going to come with him, and their bodies are going to be resurrected up out of the ground and are going to be reunited in the sky with their souls, and God's going to literally resurrect the dead. Resurrect the dead bodies. And then those who are still here on the earth 
when Jesus comes, who are still alive, like their soul's still in their body, right, will then be captured up into the sky. And so that's what we're talking about here with this first resurrection and then the second resurrection. Um, again, they will reign with him for a thousand years, end of verse 6. All right, here we go, future stuff. Y'all ready? Everybody ready? Verse 7. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison. So when time has come to an end, when the time of completion is finished, when the, when the current age that we live in is done, it's over, or, or about ready to be over, um, we'll see about ready to be over here, verse 7. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison. So he's going to be released from hell to go do what? Verse 8, he says to go out and deceive the nations of the earth. Um, we'll talk about that here in just a second. But it says that he's going to be released to go out of hell, to go out and do what he was doing before during the Old Testament age, during the age of the law. He's going to go out and deceive the nations again. He's going to have his way. He's going to run amok across the earth. And it says that he's going to go to the four corners of the earth. Now, it's interesting that when you run into that word earth, in the, at least I'm reading from the 1984 NIV translation here, when you read that term earth in the New Testament, only applies in the New Testament, doesn't apply in the, in the Old Testament, it comes from a, Hebrew, or a Greek word gain. Uh, and the Greek word gain literally refers to the Fertile Crescent territory that extends from modern-day, uh, well, we call it Mesopotamia, but modern-day kind of Iraq, that area, all the way down and around as a crescent moon shape, uh, down into Israel, all the way extending down into uh, northern Egypt. And it's a territory in the midst of all this desert sand, in the midst of all this desert mountains. Uh, it's a territory where you can grow crops, and that's why they call it the Fertile land, or the, and it's shaped like a crescent, so it's called the Fertile Crescent. And in New Testament times, anytime somebody would say the word gain, everybody knew what piece of land they were talking about. They weren't talking about the whole earth. They were talking about the Fertile Crescent part of the earth. Um, other places in the, in the Greek, there's a word that's used to refer to the whole globe, and it's the word cosmos, right? Where we get our word cosmos from. And that's always translated in your NIV New Testament as world. For God so loved the gain? Just that little fertile crescent part? No, it says for God so loved the cosmos, the world, the whole of it. And so anytime you're reading in your New Testament and you see that term earth, think, okay, well, they're just talking about that fertile crescent part of the cosmos. With me? All right. So he's going to go out into the gain, out into the earth, out into the fertile crescent to deceive those nations of the world. Now, what are the nations that are hanging out in the fertile crescent? What's there? You got Muslim nations. You got, you got uh, Saudi Arabia. You got Iran. You got enemies of Israel. They're all surrounding Israel. Sounds kind of like there's this big battle on its way, right? Toward the end of time. All right, here it comes. Uh, so he's going to deceive the nations of the corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. That comes from Ezekiel. I think it's chapter 36 or chapter 37. To gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sands of the seashore. And they marched across the breadth of the gain. See that? That little patch of dirt. They marched across the breadth. And guess where they were going, he says. And they surrounded the camp of God's people. Israel. Right? The city that God loves. Jerusalem. I mean, it's all playing. It's all right there, right? It's ready for Jesus. Whenever he's ready to return, all the pieces are sitting there in place for Satan to go out, deceive those nations, say, we're going to go take back 
that land. We're going to take back Israel for Allah, right? It's all right there and ready. But fire came down from heaven. This is amazing because it's only half of a verse. Only half a verse tells you what happens at the great Armageddon. I know there's been movies made about that, and they get really imaginative, and they think about it. But, I mean, there's like literally only a half of a verse that tells you about that battle that's going to take place. Here's what happens. It just happens, and it happens pretty quick. It says, but fire came down from heaven, and it devoured the armies. And that was it. <laughs> battle over, right? Y'all been planning for months. You've been going to the UN. You've been saying, this is our land. We've got to have this land. You've been doing all these sorts of things. And then all of a sudden, fire comes down from heaven, <laughs> consumes all these uh, all the enemies of Israel, all the enemies of God. It says, verse 10, and the devil, so the battle's over, and then the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur. Right? He's tossed into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. People from earlier in the book. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Say, Gordon, that's a really wonderful passage of Scripture. Interesting, interesting stuff, you know. I mean, and there's people out there who would say, ah, Gordon, I mean, there's some stuff in there that I don't agree with. There's some stuff in there I think that's more future than past. There's some stuff in there that, you know, I think it's got more uh, symbolic meaning rather than literal. And so there's folks that will, you know, back and forth with you on that. But for the most part, we can all agree that Jesus is going to return. There's going to be this big battle before he returns. Uh, but that when he returns, that'll be the end of that. That'll be in the end of Satan. But then we get to chapter 20 and verse 11. Because this is what difference all this makes to your life and to mine. They say, big battle, but who cares, right? I'm not going to, I want to be extreme on the right side of things. I'll probably be gone before it happens, maybe. Um, but what difference does this make to me? Well, verse 11 is what difference it makes to you and me. All right, let's take a look at this. Because verse 11 begins uh, life after the end of time. Life after human history. Right, so human history began at creation, and the fall happened. We got the age of the law. We got the Lord Jesus, the part of the Godhead that came down. It was God in human flesh. And then from his ascension into heaven, we've got the ending of the age of the law, where God dwelt among us, to now God dwelling in us through the person of the Holy Spirit. And so that's the age we live in now, the church age, which continues out to the end of time, which just happened. We just read it there in verse 10. Um, and we saw what happened to Satan at the end of time. And now God wants to deal with us. All right? Here we go, verse 11. He says, Then I saw a great white throne, and I saw him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence. And there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And notice here it says that books, were open. Multiple copies. This is not the Lamb's book of life into which your name is written in. If your name's written in it, then you get to go into heaven. That's not what this book is or books are. Um, instead, it tells us what these books are. It says um, that another book was open, which is the book of life. That's that Lamb's book of life. You want your name written in that one. The dead were judged according to what they had done. It's recorded in the books. I don't know if you knew this or not, but um, when we all stand before God, and we will all stand before God, we will have to give an account of our life. And you say, how's God going to remember my life? He's been writing it all down. 
And it's been recorded in, it says right here, in the books. See, the dead were judged according to what was written. I mean, it's right there, black and white on the page. The dead were judged according to what was written in the books. In the books. He says, verse 13, the sea gave up the dead that were in it and the death and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. So everybody, the good and the bad, people going on up into heaven and people who aren't going on up into heaven are all going to have to stand before God. Hell is going to be emptied out. The, the sea, which holds the dead there, are going to be emptied out. And all will have to stand before God and they'll be judged according, he says, to what they had done. Every moment of your life counts. Every moment. Verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The end of those. The lake of fire is the second death. Everybody resurrected, standing before God, having to give account of our life. All the judgments are passed. And then God throws those into a, back into the lake of fire, those that were, whose names weren't in the Lamb's Book of Life. And they have a second death, it says. Um, verse 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the Book of Life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. You say, Gordon, how do I get my name in that one book? How do I make sure my name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life? What did Jesus say? He said, John chapter 3 and verse 16, I quoted a few moments ago, that for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. Whosoever means whosoever. It means it doesn't matter what you've done in your life. It doesn't matter what, how bad you've been, how good you've been. It doesn't matter what you wear. It doesn't matter if you dress nice or if you don't dress nice. It means Whosoever. And so Jesus says that this petition is open to everybody. And what is the petition? That you believe in Jesus. Again, Satan believes in Jesus. He can quote scriptures. Belief is much more than just a head knowledge, but it's an appropriation of this information to my own heart, to my own life. It's me not saying, God, I want you to accept me into heaven because look at all the good things I did. Look at all the soup kitchen hours that I spent. Look at the people that I helped out in my life. Look at the checks that I wrote. Look at what a good person I was. God, you ought to accept me because of all of that. And God, when you weigh that out on the scale, I'm hoping that the good outweighs the bad and that because of that, you'll let me into heaven. Friends, God will not let you into heaven on the basis of your own good works. The only way you get to heaven is by believing in the work that Jesus did on the cross by putting your faith and trust in the work that he did for you. Not in your own works, but in his work. By putting your faith and your trust in that for the forgiveness of your sins. That is how your name gets written in the Lamb's book of life. And if anyone's name, verse 15, was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Friends, why do I share this with you this morning? Why, oh why, oh why? Perhaps because the Lord just needed to remind us all that every moment of every day matters. Why did he have us share this this morning? Perhaps because we need to know that ultimately 
our lives are just a whiff, right? Perhaps it's just to remind us this morning that us passing through this life is not about what we can get out of it, but rather it's what we can give to the Lord through it. Friends, if eternity is real, if heaven and hell are real, if everything this book talks about is real, then nothing else should matter. I was having a conversation just a couple of weeks, actually it was last week, with a pastor of a pretty, or associate pastor, I guess on staff, however you want to call that, of a pretty significant church. Pretty, pretty large, really large church. I'm just going to tell you, it's a pretty large church. And uh, we served together in a capacity uh, on, a, on a board. And um, we were talking about heaven and hell. He saw that I had a book under my arm. And it was about hell. And um, he said, what you reading? And I said, well, I got this book on hell. <laughs> Not even, you know, kind of a conversation starter, sort of, you know. <clears throat> and he said, yeah. He said, I, I, I do kind of wonder about that sometimes. And uh, he and I actually went to the same school, same seminary. And uh, he began to tell me about one of the professors at the seminary and how he had some, con- this professor, particular professor, taught some ideas about purgatory, about how, you know, you go to kind of a Catholic teaching that you go to uh, this place called purgatory and you can earn or work your way out of going to hell if you weren't, didn't put your faith and trust in Jesus and somehow make your way into heaven. He said, you know, God's a loving God. I'm sure he wouldn't just throw anybody into hell. Makes for nice logic, right? I mean, that would run on the Hallmark Channel. But that's not the way the Scriptures say it's going to go. You got friends at school. You got family members in your life who don't know Jesus. Heaven and hell are real places. And friends, if that's the case, and that's what this book says, nothing else matters. We have family members in our lives that we care about deeply, who we don't know if they made that ultimate decision for Jesus or not. Friends, if that's the case, nothing else matters. I'd like to take just a few moments this morning before we turn our time toward, of, com, of communion to pray and ask the Lord and petition on behalf of those in our lives whom we are not sure whether heaven or hell is going to be their final home. So let's turn to the Lord together. Let's bow our heads together. Most gracious God, we thank you for your word this morning. We know that it is faithful and that it is true. God, we have a lot to look forward to. Some of us have made that personal decision for you. We've trusted in the work that you've done on the cross. Our future is secure in you. And we're grateful for the confidence that we have. But Lord, there are people in our lives, whether co-workers, family members, people that we care about deeply. And God, they're living their lives and their lives are heading for a train wreck in eternity. God, we ask in the course of this week, that you would open up some doors of conversation. That you would give us 
courage to say, you know, I've been thinking about you lately. And Lord, we'll do that because nothing else matters. Lord, as we gather around this table today, we are reminded of the way to get to the Father. That it was through your shed blood and putting our faith and our trust in that work that you accomplished on the cross. We are grateful for it. And Lord, we live in a world that desperately needs to hear that information. God, we pray that you would plant in our heart during this time of communion today your desire for us to go out into the world and to share the good news of the gospel. We pray this in Christ's holy name.